Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the 5 and 40 podcast. My name is Greg Steele. I'm your host. Uh, just a little bit about the 5 and 40 podcast. It's a podcast where we try to talk about five different topics and we do it for in 40 minutes. So try to talk about some interesting things and do it in a manageable time frame. Uh, just right off the bat, I have to say that anything that's said in this episode and any opinions expressed are my own, and they don't reflect the views of any other organization, employer, or really anybody else. So now that we got the legal stuff out of the way, we can go ahead and get started. Uh, the first topic that we're going to talk about, topic number one, is going to be the state of the podcast. Um, I really appreciate those who are listening, and honestly... I wasn't sure whether or not I was going to continue to do the podcast, but I had multiple people that told me they were listening and were interested in what was going on, and they enjoyed it and maybe learned some things. And so I'm really back to doing the podcast because of you guys out there, and I really appreciate that. Um, but just to kind of give you a little bit of background, and many of you who listen to the podcast or follow on Facebook are sort of aware of this, but I had made a podcast that talked about some of the things that are currently kind of going on in the state of the nation. And the day after I made the podcast, my employer had put out a new social media policy. And the social media policy was very, very, very vague. And so it didn't have real guidelines. It just basically said something along the lines of if you said something and someone else didn't like it and kind of complained or, you know, basically said, oh, this person works at this organization and they're saying these things that you could be disciplined or maybe even terminated. And it was just a vague policy that said things like, well, we can't just discuss every possible eventuality. So if you break it, you break it, but we can't necessarily give you a lot of guidelines about what that means. And so I had done that podcast and honestly, I didn't necessarily think I said anything really bad in it. And some people did request uh, personally to listen to it and we're able to do that and if you did listen to it and you see me I would like your feedback send me a text or you know tell me if you see me and just see what your opinion was about what I said and if you thought any of it was sort of outside the lines I don't really think so um, the only problem is is with kind of the way things are right now you can say what you want and you can not think it's a problem but that doesn't mean that other people don't think it's a problem and it just sort of led me to this place where I had to weigh, well, you know, I have a good job and I enjoy what I do and I like the people I work with and it's something I'd like to continue doing. And is it worth kind of saying something in a podcast that someone could complain about that might potentially lead to a problem? And so I'm sitting here and I'm weighing out freedom of speech versus I'm weighing out that. And I mean, at the end of the day, the answer was no, you know, I don't, I don't think that anything would have come about it. At the same time, I think it you know, all it takes is one person to complain. It seems like right now we're in a in a place of cancel cancel culture where if you've ever said anything in the past someone doesn't like or you say someone something someone doesn't like, they're not just responding and saying, Hey dude, you know, that's not good or hey, I don't agree with that, let's have a conversation. You know, people are out there trying to get people fired and trying to, you know, trash people online and do all of these things. And so it's just kind of a time where I just didn't feel like that was at risk or it was worth the risk, let's put it that way. But at the same time, you know, kind of concerned about a lack of freedom of speech, and I was doing a little bit of research on that. And, you know, it actually turns out that freedom of speech only, you know, the rights in the Constitution only protect you from the government uh, going against your freedom of speech, but there are no legal protections from your employer uh, doing something for what you might say. 
Now, I did read that there are some states who have, like, state laws that kind of protect you, but Georgia certainly is not one of them. And that's where I live. And um, it's that, you know, I read examples, you know, on websites where people were talking about this stuff and even, like, legal websites where they were talking about it where, you know, an employer had an employee that comes in and the employee had put a bumper sticker on their car for the political party the employer didn't like and the employer fired the employee. And that was pretty much it. I mean, there's not any legal recourse against that. They can basically just do whatever they want. And so the real problem is, is that we technically have freedom of speech in this country from the government, but we don't have freedom of speech from employers and certainly not online and certainly everywhere else. And so, you know, to me, that's something that in the future uh, would be good to improve, but it certainly doesn't look like that's the direction that we're headed. Um, but I think that... Um, I think that the podcast is good, and I think that it, it has some value. Um, and and again, the reason I think that is because of other people talking to me and saying, hey, we, we love the podcast, we listen, it, it we enjoy it, can you make some more episodes? Um, I'm going to make a little change. You know, previously I had 5 and 40, so I had five topics, and I actually had uh, topic categories, you know, topic categories of something medical, something good, something not so great. I had music, one time I had bourbon. And I tried to make those those really broad so that I didn't necessarily get pigeonholed into anything. But as I did the podcast, I sort of felt, and especially during this break from the podcast when I was kind of giving some serious thought into coming back, and if I did, how was I going to do it? I still think that even though those categories were really broad, they are a little bit restrictive. So going forward, I'm not going to have categories anymore. Um, I'm basically just going to look for five interesting topics of any kind and talk about those things and try to get them into an eight-minute bubble and and try to get them out there to you. Um, But it's interesting about just not being restricted in the podcast and being able to say whatever you want. Now, I'm a structure guy, and I do feel like I have to have some structure in this thing. It can't just kind of be willy-nilly. I also really would like to, you know, present topics with facts if I'm able to, um, but, you know, it's just one of those things where I felt like that I was having trouble coming up with topics that fit into those categories for some reason, even though those categories were incredibly broad, and I feel like it'd be much easier if I just can kind of talk about whatever it is that could be interesting or whatever it is that I kind of come across that week, and so my goal here is to kind of get back to the podcast, and I actually did a pretty poor job initially of even doing them weekly, and I would like to do them weekly. Um, I'm going to try to pick a day that I do them on that just kind of gets to be more of a standard. Uh, maybe Tuesdays would be the day. This is Tuesday, this date of 8-11-2020. But I haven't even done a podcast uh, since late July. So, Or actually, I'm sorry, late June. So it's been a long time. I actually started doing this podcast yesterday <laughs> and ended up really messing it up. And it turns out that that was a good trial run because since I haven't been doing it in a while, I I was immediately thinking, gosh, I should have done that different or I should have done that different. Um, and so a trial run wasn't bad, but I kind of goofed up and lost the whole one from yesterday. But I'm going to try to talk about the same things today, but I hopefully will do it in a more precise manner and that make a lot more sense because yesterday I kind of just felt like I was all over the place. I kind of think that, um, you know, this podcast thing is just kind of easy, but it is a little bit difficult sometimes to sit here and not just talk for this period of time, but just to kind of keep it well organized and have it make sense and just not be rambling and saying things you didn't really want to say, or maybe even more importantly, missing things that you wanted to talk about. 
So uh, anyway, thank you for being here, and let's get the podcast back rolling, and uh, let me know your thoughts. So topic number two today is I wanted to talk a little bit about my birthday weekend. As I said, today is eight eleven twenty. My birthday was on the eighth, which was this past Saturday, and it was really nice time, specifically because we hadn't really seen my father uh, or my stepmother. They would live in Augusta in a very long period of time due to COVID, and they came down for the weekend and spent it with us, and that was really great. And we had a little get together. It was a smaller get together than we normally would have on my birthday. I try to have a pretty big get together on those dates, but with COVID, you know, that wasn't really an option. So we had my neighbor and we had my dad and my stepmom. And then my, my sister came over and brought uh, her daughter and her boyfriend. So it was kind of a really small crowd. Um, but we really had a nice time. It was a lot of fun and it was nice to see some people again. And it was nice to get together again. And I really missed a lot of my friends and a lot of people that normally would have come to this kind of, you know, thing with us and hang out. But, you know, I'm looking forward to the time when we can start getting together again. But really, honestly, uh, the highlight of the weekend and maybe the highlight of any get-together we have, or at least the way I try to make it, is the food. So we always have a lot of food. I I fed my poor dad until he couldn't stand up anymore. (laughs) I told him he had to keep eating until the crying started. (laughs) because we just had so much food it's so many appetizers and just so much everything um but honestly the two things that are really worth talking about the most i think are probably the uh, meat that i made and then the dessert or my birthday cake anyway and so the meat that i made uh if you listen to the podcast before i think i've talked a little bit about uh, pellet grills i'm a big fan of a pellet grill um If you like to grill, I think it's the way to go. And even if you like to cook, it's kind of like having an outdoor oven. It's just really nice. But one of the things that really does a nice job is is smoking and cooking big pieces of meat and kind of (laughs) effortlessly. (laughs) You say that three times. Um, Because all you really have to do is plug it in and turn it on and you can adjust the temperature pretty easily. But it kind of runs itself as long as you keep pellets in it. But one of the things that's my favorite to make is is a corned beef. And so basically, uh, corned beef is just a brisket, and the brisket is brined, and that kind of turns it into a corned beef. And so basically, you do a brine, and it has to have what's called curing salt in it, which is kind of hard to find in Albany. Probably some bigger cities you can find it, but you can always order it on Amazon. And you use pickling spices and usually kosher salt. And then you can have a variety of other things in there, and honestly, you can put whatever you want. I did a whole onion, and I put a beer and we, the recipe that I kind of base this off of is a Traeger, uh, Traeger is the name brand of my pellet grill, and they have a website, Traeger.com, that has a ton of recipes, and so they have a beer brine corned beef recipe, and so I, that's what I made previously, and that's what I based my recipe on now, and that recipe calls for really dark beer, like a porter beer, but we decided we kind of like lighter beers better, so we started putting light beer in there. And I usually put some brown sugar and uh, just kind of whatever else you want. I mean, there's really no limitations to what you can kind of put in your in your brine. But you put it in a food-grade bucket and you put your brine in there and your curing salt basically turns this brisket into a corned beef. Usually takes, you can do it in about 72 hours. I tend to do it in about 90 hours or four days or so. It's not like it's hard. You put it in a bucket, put the bucket in the fridge, stir it one time a day. Um, but anyway, when it comes out, it looks very different and you can tell it looks more like a corned beef than it does a brisket. And so you grill that thing up and man, it is usually pretty delicious. Um, but this time I decided I'd been seeing people that were making pastrami's. Now, 
If you ever go to New York City and go to one of the famous delis like Cat's Delis, you know, one of the places with the best meats, you know, you get a corned beef and pastrami sandwich, and that's sort of just the way it goes. Um, I mean, that's the, supposed to be the best thing. And so I'd made corned beef before, but I decided I want to make a pastrami. Now, the thing I found out about a pastrami is is that a brisket, a whole brisket has a has a flat, and then it has another part that's kind of, well, a whole packer brisket, but it has a higher, you know, more meat part. And the uh, flat is pretty thin. And so generally a pastrami is just the flat, but I bought a whole brisket from Sam's. So I kind of had both parts and I brined both parts. And so what I decided to do was, because up in New York City when you get a sandwich, you usually get a corned beef and pastrami sandwich, I decided to make both. So the the, uh, the taller part I turned into a corned beef and I made it that way. And then the, the flat I did a pastrami. Really the only difference between the two of them is that uh, pastrami has an extra rub on it, and the rub is usually a coriander-based rub. And mine had, like, coriander, paprika. I had onion powder, garlic powder, red pepper flakes, uh, coriander, and just rubbed it on there, and it kind of makes this nice bark on the outside. But when it was done, I had a really nice corned beef and a really nice um, pastrami, and we kind of sliced those up, and we had Reuben's with uh, rye bread and Swiss cheese, Thousand Island dressing, and sauerkraut. And uh, it was pretty darn good, I gotta say. It really turned out very well. And brisket is probably the most challenging meat to cook, I think. It really takes some practice, and I guess the one thing I'll say about it, because when you make these pastrami's and you make them into corned beefs, you still cook it just like a brisket. And I think the biggest challenge is, is when I look online or I look at the Traeger website or other places for recipes for, um, for this meat, for a brisket, it basically always tells you to pull it off at 205 because the goal temperature is 205 and you've got to cook meat like a, a piece of meat like this with a thermometer in it and just be monitoring the temperature continuously. There's no time that you cook it. You cook it to the temperature. And so um, I made it and it turned out like shoe leather, you know, really brown, really overdone. And so I've, the thing is, is that with a big piece of meat like this, when you make it, you usually wrap it in foil and you rest it. What I do with these things is I cook them to 165, then I wrap them in foil and finish them, and then I take the foil wrap meat off the grill and put it in a cooler with towels, and you can leave it there for hours. And if you're doing this for a party, the best way to do it is get it done way ahead of time, put it on really early in the morning, you know, and then have it just sitting in the cooler. You know, the thought is, is that when you cook a big piece of meat and you cook it at high heat, that the the ligaments tighten up and the water all goes to the center so in during the resting time it loosens and the water spreads back out and keeps the meat nice and moist and tender and so anyway i think the point is is i've learned that you really have to pull them off at about 197 if you have a 10 to 12 pound uh, brisket it's going to heat up another seven or eight degrees while it rests and so when i was pulling it at 205 and it rested by the time i went to eat it it was 213 it was overdone so if you pull it at 197 198 it usually comes out 204 205 and it's pretty darn perfect um but i really recommend looking at that recipe and cooking one of those um it always turns out delicious whenever we have a party and i ask people what they want that's always the answer it's very popular and even though you can tell people it looks really hard it's actually pretty darn easy. I mean, it's in a bucket. You stir it once a day. Then you put it on the grill with a thermometer in it. And you don't touch it for nine hours generally. And, you know, you get really good meat. I kind of ran out of time talking about brisket in this little segment. But just to talk about my birthday cake, I like Snickers uh, birthday cakes and Dairy Queen. Last year did a really poor job with it. So this year, 
Um, I used Fat Boy ice cream sandwiches and did two layers. And in between the layers, I put um, chopped up honey roasted peanuts, chopped up Snickers, hot fudge, caramel, and homemade whipped cream. Then I put another layer of sandwiches, that stuff on top, covered it again with whipped cream. Uh, found that recipe on Pinterest. 100% recommend. It looked great and it tasted uh, as good as it looked. I probably could do another eight minutes just on that cake. <laughs> but we'll let that one go for now. But if you see me and you're interested, let me know because I really think you should make the cake. Uh, the third topic that I'm going to talk about today is the bourbon project. And one thing is, is that I had quit drinking for a pretty good period of time. And I used to talk about bourbon on every podcast. But when I went on hiatus from drinking, I kind of talked about music instead. Um, but, and I have started drinking a little bit. We went to the beach and, and we, um, we went to St. Simon's Island and I drank some when we were there and then I drank some this last weekend for my birthday party. So I'm not drinking nearly as much as I was before, but I'm kind of back to drinking a little bit here and there. And the reason that I wanted to talk about the bourbon project is just to kind of recap, because I know I've talked about it before, is that I was doing a honey finished bourbon, um, and I got my own bourbon barrel um, I bought one that's two liters and when you're making bourbon you you have to use a charred oak barrel and the char can be like a number three or number four are the most common ones and so it's basically like using fire to burn the inside of the barrel and then when you put the clear liquor in there you know it's the contact with the sides of the barrel that turns it brown and gives it the flavor and makes it into a bourbon and so I took three, now one thing about doing a small thing like I did, which is like a two liter barrel, because normally, you know, bourbon's made in a 55 gallon drum, a, you know, a wooden one. And it's all about the contact of the liquid with the wall of the barrel. So when you have a really big drum, there's only a small percentage of the liquid that's contacting that barrel at any one time. And so the ability to get all of the liquid inside that barrel, you know, flavored, it takes a long time. I mean, you have bourbons that are seven years old, but you have ones that are 10 and 15 and 20 and 21 and whatever. But the point is, is they can stay in that barrel for a really long time and it's not necessarily going to be a problem. But in these smaller barrels, because they're so tiny, you know, the uh, much more of the liquid is in contact with the walls of the barrel at any one time. And so you have to be real careful with it. Um, you can't leave it in there too long because if you leave it in there too long, it gets super woody or super oaky and you can ruin it. Um, another thing is, is that they make something called white dog. And what white dog is, is white dog is the, the liquor that comes from fermenting the grains, you know, the clear stuff before they put it in a barrel. You can buy that stuff. And so you could buy that stuff and put it in your own barrel. And I was reading about that. But basically what they were saying was, again, because because the of you really need it to sit in the barrel a long time if it's just this pure alcohol in order to get a good flavor and in a short period of time you can't get it how you want to taste it and if you leave it in that small barrel too long it just gets over oaky and it's no good so they basically were saying that those kind of barrels really aren't any good for attempting to make your own bourbon with a white dog but it's really good for finishing bourbon that's already done um, one other thing to talk about is something called the angel share. And what the angel share is, is that basically when you have a barrel, it's not totally sealed and you lose some to evaporation. And I was reading some things online where guys had put uh, bourbons and things into barrels this small and left them in there and just didn't check on them for six months. And when they checked on them, the whole entire thing had evaporated and there wasn't any left. <laughs> so obviously you can't do that either. That doesn't work. 
So what finishing bourbon means is that actually in order to be a bourbon, you know, you have to have this alcohol and it has to go into a charred oak barrel. It, and that's the rules to make it a bourbon. But you can finish it, meaning that once you get it done in that charred oak barrel, you then can put it in other barrels and add additional flavors. Some will, some will do uh, put it in wine barrels to finish it, and there's just this big variety. But one of the more popular ones is a honey-finished bourbon made by a company called Bell Mead, and there really aren't that many honey-finished out there. And just to give credit where credit is due, there's a guy, George Suburban, who is uh, in the Atlanta bourbon barons group who did this and he did it with a much larger barrel and i was watching his facebook stuff and that's kind of where i got the idea i wish i was smart enough to have the idea on my own but i kind of followed some of his stuff but my barrel was much smaller i had to do a few variations but what i did at the end of the day is i took three pretty inexpensive bourbons that i like and i and i mixed them together and i filled this up with two liters of bourbon and i let the bourbon sit in there like at four weeks and so basically during that four weeks, you know, the, the oak barrel was adding more flavor to the bourbon, but at the same time the barrel soaks up some of the bourbon and it's in the wood. And so after four weeks I took it out and then I filled it with honey. And I got to thank Dr. Simmons, uh, Simmons Family Honey. He kind of provided me with the honey, which was really nice. But then I left the honey in there for about four weeks. And while the honey was in there, you know, some of the bourbon that was in the walls kind of got into the honey and I was kind of shaking it. Well, then I took all the honey out. But there was still some honey kind of on the sides. And so then I put the bourbon back in. And basically the bourbon's in there still getting more flavor. But it's also being honey finished. It's getting some honey finish. And that had been in there about two weeks in the honey. And so when my dad was here this weekend, I decided we were going to try it for the first time. We hadn't tasted it. And we did taste it. And it was really tasty. Now, I don't think it's done yet. I'm going to leave it in the barrel longer. I think it could use a little more oaky flavor. But with that being said, the honey finish was really nice. It had a really good bourbon flavor on the front end. And then a nice honey finish. And uh, the other thing that I'm planning on doing that I, I took from the guy in Atlanta as well is that once he took the bourbon back out, like when it's finished, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to put it into bottles. But then I'm going to put the honey back in and I'm going to leave the honey in for a few more weeks to let it get some more bourbon flavor. When I took the honey out after four weeks, there was a little bit of bourbon flavor, but I'd probably like to try to have a little bit more. Um, so I'm going to just taste it every week now, and when it gets where I want it, I don't want it to get too oaky, but when it gets where I really like the flavor, I'm going to take it out, I'm going to bottle it up, and then put the honey back in. But at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is have two liters of honey-finished bourbon and two liters of bourbon-finished honey, and I think that'll be pretty delicious. And I'm looking forward to um, getting together with some of my bourbon friends and some other folks to kind of have tastings once I get it done. And as long as it works well, and it looks so far like it's working well, you know, they said you can kind of reuse the barrel and kind of do other projects. I might do a maple finish. My dad really likes maple finished bourbon, so maybe I'll do one of those. And then I would have bourbon maple syrup and some maple finished bourbon. And so, you know, it's something to do and it's something that's fun. It does take a while. I think from front to end, this is probably going to be at least a four-month process. But... Eh, what else am I doing, right? It's just sitting there. It's not necessarily any hardship, <laughs> but I do get a little impatient sometimes. I want to try it. But I did really enjoy trying it with my dad this weekend. It was quite a bit of fun. And so, I don't know. I'll, I might, I'll talk some more about bourbon. I did do an episode where 
I had a good request from my friend Anthony who asked like if I wanted to get into bourbon what are good first bourbons to try and I know I talked about that in a previous episode so if you have any interest I recommend going back because there's quite a few good ones that are readily available and that you can find on shelves that are pretty good to taste and to try. And maybe one thing that's different from then that I could recommend is is basically anybody who's new to bourbon and is a new bourbon drinker, they want to drink bourbon that doesn't burn a whole lot. Now, bourbon can be very complex. It can have different flavors when you first put it in your mouth and then different flavors when you taste it. And as you drink it more, you kind of get good at experiencing those things. And then the other thing is, is that they can have some burn and be, you know, higher proofs. And so most new bourbon drinkers aren't going to like higher proofs. They're not going to like burn and they really don't aren't at a place where they can identify these different flavors. They just want something that's kind of smooth all the way through. And so that's kind of how you pick new bourbons for new bourbon drinkers. And really, one good rule of thumb is usually the younger bourbons are, meaning the less time they've been in the barrel, the less harsh they're going to be. But just right off the bat, one that's readily available, it's easy to find, is called Basil Hayden's. And Basil Hayden's is a good new bourbon bourbon for new drinkers people tend to like it it's just it's not that it's bad it's just as you drink bourbon for a while i think your tastes get more complex or most people's do but if you just like basil hayden's forever there'd be nothing wrong with that either but it's a good one to try not very expensive easy to find if you wanted to give it a shot so the third topic that oh well, sorry i'm actually on the fourth topic already that i was going to talk about today was kind of the state of covid um you know i work with covid patients many of you know and haven't talked about COVID in a while, and COVID is a kind of an interesting thing, right? Because COVID is so many different things. I mean, it's yes, it's a virus and it's a disease and it's making people sick, but it's also like a belief system and it's also political and it's also all these things. And um, I do think that you know we don't necessarily get a lot of good information. I think there's opportunities about of people that are kind of running this in, in the country. You know, we really could have had some graphs and charts and some good information about how this was affecting age groups and races and all these kind of things and people with immunosuppressive disorders because I really think that we're at a point where you know it's here and I don't think we can hope for a vaccine anytime soon and we had no we're having antibody testing done but the question is what value is antibody testing because the fact that even if you have antibodies we don't know how durable they are we don't know that because you have antibodies that you can't ever get COVID again and we also don't know if you could is it two weeks later is it a year later we don't know right and so the real problem with it is is that the way way COVID's been managed is just that there's a lot of unknowns and it seems to me like the people who are doing it and running it in the country like they kind of wax and wane or waffle a lot one week they say do this the next week they say oh that's not good and then the next week they say oh no we should have been doing that and I don't think anybody is really trying hard to confuse people although I think there is a lot of confusion but I think it's just that there's too many things that we just don't know and and considering the period of time it's been and, and everything we still just don't know a lot but I think there's some things that we're seeing that we do know. And one of the things I think we do know is that, yes, young people are getting it. But when they get it, they aren't having a lot of symptoms. And they're not getting necessarily very sick. And when they do get very sick, it's not like there's deaths in large numbers. And so there's really not a lot of risk for younger people. And that's, you know, coming from the teenage years. I mean, even up into the 20s, pretty much the younger you are, the risk is going down as far as deaths. Because honestly... If you catch this thing and you have some symptoms but you don't die, I mean, I, I'm not happy that you caught it and that you felt bad, but, you know, kind of like a flu-like illness and there you go. 
Now, the other thing that I think that we're seeing that's true is that cases are going up, and the cases that are going up are largely in young people. But the real danger in that, I think, is that them giving it to older people or immunosuppressed people, younger people getting it, taking it to their parents, and I've seen that in a couple of cases now. And I can say that that the presentation of COVID is, is kind of different than it used to be, right? So when this thing was really bad in Albany, this is Albany, Georgia, you know, which was one of the four worst places in the world per capita for these cases. And we had deaths after deaths after deaths. I mean, people were showing up and they were already short of breath and already needing high levels of oxygen. And then two days later, they were on the ventilator and we couldn't get them off. And there was just this huge number of people dying. And the interesting thing now with the COVID people that are coming in, because the numbers are trending back up, but the presentation is different. I've seen several people now who didn't really even need oxygen. Like it wasn't affecting their respiratory system. It was really making them have fevers, but they felt terrible. They were having muscle aches. They didn't want to eat. They were dehydrated, some diarrhea. Um, but respiratory status was perfectly fine. Like the virus had mutated and it kind of was affecting people in different ways. Now, the interesting thing is, is that other than being short of breath at the beginning, people didn't necessarily look like they were super sick. Now people look super sick. Now people look like they have the flu or they just look like they feel terrible. And I mean, I'll just be honest. I don't like necessarily seeing people like that, but I'll take people feeling terrible over, you know, uh, there being a whole bunch of deaths. And so cases do continue to rise. I think over the weekend, you know, we saw quite a few more cases come in. Um, but, you know, I think the real thing is, is that we're kind of at a point where, you know, deaths are very low. Even though cases are coming up, deaths are going down. Seeing it a lot more young people. And I'm getting a lot of phone calls from friends and these other things now that these kids are coming down with it and saying, well, what do I do and what is this and what is that? And, you know, there's a big argument in the country about masks, and the question is masks. Now, a couple of things that are true, you know, the one most misunderstood thing is that people think they wear a mask and they're protecting themselves. That's true if you wear an N95, but your regular people shouldn't be wearing N95s. Um, and N95s don't necessarily offer protection for the people that are around you, just for yourself. Um, when you wear cloth masks or surgical masks or whatever, you're not protecting yourself at all. You're protecting other people from your droplets. And so the thing about a mask is, is that everybody needs to be wearing a mask to catch their droplets. Because the more people that do, then the less droplets that are out there and the less chance that we spread it to other people. And so from that standpoint, I mean, that's not political. It's pretty scientific. I think it's been well proven. And I think that that is a good argument for why when people are out and about, they should probably wear a mask. Um, I think that... When I have people call me and they're just like, oh, my daughter tested positive or my friend tested positive. What should I do? What should I do? I mean, the real problem with COVID testing is, is that COVID testing is the kind of testing that we call PCR testing. And so PCR testing is incredibly sensitive, meaning that it's really good at finding something. And it's a DNA-based test. So it's finding the DNA of the coronavirus. And we do PCR tests for other things and it can find DNA. But it's very sensitive and it's very, very good at finding this stuff. But what we say about it is that it's not very specific. And what specificity means is that, is it causing you an illness? Or is it spreading to other people? And so the real problem with these kind of tests is that if you had virus and it was dead and it wasn't shedding, but there's the virus with DNA there, this test is going to pick it up. So a positive test you know, doesn't necessarily mean that. And I'm seeing some people who are testing positive six weeks later, eight weeks later, 
I really doubt that after six or eight weeks that these people are shedding the virus. And as a matter of fact, you see in the new CDC guidelines that came out that they're basically saying if you tested positive for COVID, that you should quarantine yourself for 10 days and then you should get back to work. And that's basically saying that what they're seeing is is that, you know, viral shedding after 10 days can't be very high. Um, and so, you know, things have changed quite a little bit. And yes, we're seeing a lot of cases, but I honestly think... Be- Despite the larger number of cases, I think there's a lot less to panic about because a lot more people are dying. People don't seem to be having the same respiratory issues. Um, But I do think, like, the answer to the question of, oh, this person tested positive and this and that. You know, another thing the CD said, too, is that they said it's not recommended that you retest people to supposedly say they're better. You know, so we used to do that. We used to uh, say, oh, we're going to quarantine you for 14 days and we're going to retest, and if it's negative, you're okay. Well, as we're seeing people testing positive with this PCR testing so long, now the CDC is saying quarantine 10 days, don't retest. And what they're saying is, is go back into society, go back to work after 10 days, but social distance and wear your mask. And so the answer to all these questions, like, I was exposed to this, and I this, and I that, and I this. I mean, if you have symptoms, get tested. That might tell you to quarantine yourself for 10 days. But if you don't have any symptoms... You know, there's people that are asymptomatic carriers that could spread it around for up to two weeks. And so the answer still at this point, I don't think it's closed the country, but I do think it's continue to wear your mask and social distance. And masks don't necessarily present 100% of transmissions. And I've seen something that say maybe even 40%, but if everyone wears a mask of 40% reduced in transmissions is a big number. And that makes it valuable. Um, so COVID's a little bit different, but unfortunately still hanging around. So we'll look forward to the day when it's not such a trouble anymore. So category number five, and this is something that's pretty interesting. We were here this weekend on Sunday after all the birthday stuff was over and my dad had left and we were just kind of, you know, we cleaned up everything and we were just kind of looking for something to watch. And we came across this thing on Netflix, which is a documentary. The documentary uh, was made by Jacob Dylan, who's the son of Bob Dylan, who is the singer for the 90s group called The Wallflowers. If you remember them, they had a couple of hits. Um, but they made a movie uh, called Echoes in the Canyon. And so basically this movie is a celebration of the Laurel Canyon, California music scene from the 1960s. And it just kind of turns out that this was a place where a lot of folk singers went in the 1960s and some of the biggest groups of all time were kind of born out of this scene and were in this scene and so basically the way that it runs is that Jacob Dylan uh you know it's the anniversary and he kind of wanted to um honor this and so part of this is that he basically recorded a lot of these songs and he had a concert Um, doing a lot of these songs and when he did the concert he brought in a lot of other famous singers Um, he had Beck he had uh, oh let's see for some reason or whatever I just lost it here but he had Regina Spector Um, he had uh, some people that I hadn't heard of before but basically they just put this big concert on and they were singing the songs of these groups And the history was also pretty interesting of, like, some of these groups and then the people that were in these groups that you knew of from later projects but you didn't know were actually in these groups. And so the groups that they really focused on were, like, Buffalo Springfield, the Birds, uh, the, they had, um, um, let's see, so you had people like Stephen Stills 
And so, you know, Stephen Stills is from Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And you had uh, David Crosby actually in Buffalo Springfield. And so later when some of these groups broke up, then they made some other super groups, you know. And um, I just thought that it was really interesting. And the songs were really good. They talked also a lot about the Mamas and the Papas who were a group during that time. And uh, Fiona Apple was one of the singers in the concert. And they hadn't seen Fiona Apple in quite a long time. Uh, you know, she also had some 90s hits and these kind of things and was a really good singer. So it was good to see her back. Um, but they talked some about the Beatles, too. And they talked, uh, too, about the Beach Boys. And it turns out that the guy that wrote all the songs for the Beach Boys is really considered to be an incredibly brilliant guy. And they made an album that actually was supposed to be the influence for the Beatles' uh, Sgt. Pepper's album. And so these guys all went to this Laurel Canyon area, and they were all hanging out together, and they were all writing music together. And they um, just came up with some of the best tunes of all time. And the interesting thing was is that it was kind of the first time that anybody had taken folk music and that they had kind of put a rock beat behind it. So their goal was to do, you know, folk songs, but they wanted it to have a rock beat. And so, you know, there was a lot of people that kind of were not necessarily happy about that and didn't think that was a good music style. But of course, it became one of the most popular music styles in the 1950s and really, I'm sorry, the 1960s. It really changed music, you know, altogether. Um, and so they interview some of these people from this time and they kind of go into some of the studios where some of this favorite for this famous music was recorded and so i really think it's worth a watch um i think it was something around an hour and a half so it didn't necessarily take some huge amount of time but it was just a very interesting look into this time um but they had uh you know, Tom Petty was on it, and Ringo Starr, and Nora Jones did some singing, and it was just really kind of an interesting look into the time. And so, yeah, I'd give that a look if you like that kind of music, or if you're a music lover and you're looking for something cool to watch, I think that would be a, well worth your time. Um, another thing that I've been watching lately, which I guess this is sort of off-topic, but hey, we got a few minutes left, is um, a show, you know, an old show called The West Wing, and it was on TV kind of a while back, and it, it's a show that has, you know, it's about the president and, and basically an administration, and it's about the president and all of his upper-level people in his administration, and just kind of how they navigate uh, Washington and navigate the Senate and kind of all the problems that they come across and how they deal with them. And, you know, the one thing I'll say specifically about that show, it's a little bit old, but I think it's it's relevant in the, to today and the reason i think it's relative and i think it's really interesting because the president and the administration that's in the oval office are democrats and sometimes they're talking about supporting democratic agendas but a lot of times they're talking about supporting things that i think these days would be seen as primarily republican because you know these days everything has to be to one extreme side or the other there aren't anything in the middle and I think the thing about it is, is it's just to me, like, this is how the White House should really run. And I think probably when the show was actually out, the White House didn't necessarily run this way. It was probably still pretty fictional. And it's kind of feel good. I like to watch it before I go to bed because I don't like to watch, like, really stressful TV before then. And watching them and how they deal with things, and it seems like they're more worried about doing what's the right thing than they're worried about politics or or even whatever the blowback of doing the right thing might be which we know in this time of politics just really doesn't exist anymore right um and so i don't know i think it's a pretty good show and i think it really stood the test of time and i think um 
it, it's worth a look. The characters are good, the stories are good, and uh, I've really been enjoying watching it. So that's another one I might recommend if somebody during this time is looking for something that they might want to watch. And so we're almost here to the 40 minutes. Um, I try to keep it to time just because I want to make, you know, it listenable and not take up too much of people's time. But I hope you enjoyed the podcast. As always, you know, go on uh, whatever service that you're listening to this podcast on. Please, you know, rate us. Give us a five-star rating. Um, heck, even if you don't like it, put something up there. I'm fine with that. I really like and want feedback. Um, if there's things I could be doing better, I'd like to know that. I also like it when people come up and they suggest topics. I like to use topics that anyone who might be listening might be interested in. Um, I do have the Facebook page, and if you haven't liked it, please do and send a message. Um, I'll try to post some things up there about the episode, and we'll see you guys next time. Everybody be safe, be careful, and thanks for listening.